Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun. And that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. This is an historic time. This is going to be a multi-year fight. Why is it taking so long to get a screening test? It is not a hoax. It is real. Something that we have never experienced before. Wash hands, wash hands, wash hands. I mean, you're the scientist. You're going to have to tell me. (laughs) Welcome, welcome to Science Rules Coronavirus Edition. I'm your host, Bill Nye, and this is the series that brings you the latest analysis and the science of this pandemic to keep you informed, prepared, and calm. We are still all in this together, my friends. And to date, more than 6 million Americans have been infected with the coronavirus, with more than 180,000 deaths. We have roughly 40,000 people testing positive every day for the virus, but people still have questions about those tests, especially when it comes to the different types of tests and how to best use them. I myself have been tested four times, all negative by different techniques, and I just wonder which one is which. So here to help clear things up is Dr. Zoe McLaren. She's a professor of public policy at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, where she uses econometrics to answer public health questions. Dr. Zoe McLaren, welcome to Science Rules. May I call you Zoe? Of course. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you so much. Before we even start about starting to begin, what is econometrics? <laughs> econometrics is basically statistics applied um, in the economics realm. Um, so basically, it's just another way of um, saying the word statistics. Uh, a charming way to say <laughs> statistics, but these are statistics related to public health. Some people test positive, then they test negative, then there's negative, positive, positive, negative, and you're not really sure what's going on. So what is going on? Sure. So I think the idea is that none of the tests we have are absolutely 100% accurate. And that is not a major drawback. So they are generally quite accurate. They're accurate enough for our purposes. But every time that there's a false positive or a false negative, it tends to get a lot of uh, news attention and it can really worry people. Okay. Hang on a second. You know, when I think of a test, it's, it's binary. It's like a light switch. It's on or it's off. But you're saying even if it's on when it shouldn't be and off when it shouldn't be, it's still useful? Yeah. And the idea is that 
if it's close to 100% or very high level of accuracy, then that's good enough for our purposes. So the idea is that we want to follow what the test results say, um, but bearing in mind that there may be a small proportion of cases where um, it's actually the opposite result. And so that can be very frustrating if you're someone who's gotten a false negative or false positive. But in the grand scheme of things, the idea is that using these tests, it's much more important to do the testing, even though there's this drawback of false positives and false negatives, that the overall testing program is very, very beneficial. So you're saying uh, statistically, it sorts itself out if you have enough tests. So I, what are the tests that you can describe that are going on right now? There's two or three or four or five, right? Yeah. And so I will clarify that, remember, the, the purpose of testing is to let us identify cases so that people who are sick can get access to treatment and people who are contagious can self-isolate so they don't spread the disease. So whenever we talk about testing, we always want to think about the ultimate purpose here. And the same thing when we think about testing data. So our testing data is in the service of saving lives and preventing the transmission of disease. So we always want to keep those goals in mind. So in terms of the tests that are out there, there are basically two sets. Uh, Sets of tests to think about, diagnostic tests and screening tests. The diagnostic tests are the tests that are generally used in a medical setting, and they tend to rely on people who develop symptoms or they're aware that they've been exposed and they go and seek health care potentially to get treatment. I have a fever or sore throat, so then you want the diagnosis. Is this caused by coronavirus or something, some other thing? Exactly. And that's partly why in a medical setting, we need very high accuracy, because if it isn't the coronavirus, then we want to think, well, what else could it be to make sure that people get access to other types of care as well? So, and that test is generally the a PCR test, a, a polymerase chain reaction. Um, this is where you, you guys poke the thing up trying to... they tried to get a sample of my brain uh, poking it. But, you know, as you may know, I don't have a brain. So there was no, uh, it came back negative. That's one type of test is PCR. Then what's the other one? And so the PCR test, remember, the, the way that the sample is collected, that can vary among the PCR tests. So in your case, it sounds like you had the nasopharyngeal swab, which goes way back into basically almost your brain and, and really is uh, can be painful for some people, and some people have an aversion to it. It's also possible to do the same test where the sample is collected just in the back of the nose, which is much less uncomfortable. And now there's the possibility of using saliva to do the exact same PCR test. Okay. Then what's the screening test? So the idea about screening tests, remember diagnostic tests are a medical setting and wait for people to show up with symptoms. A screening test, the idea is to be um, widespread. So we're trying to test a big proportion of the population to try to catch cases before they spread. So it's a proactive way of testing that we want to go out and reach people, people who may have no symptoms and yet still may be contagious. And we're going to use probably a different type of test. It's possible to do screening with diagnostic quality tests, but a lot of the diagnostic quality tests are quite expensive. And so it's hard to get enough tests with the budgets we have to get to a large proportion of the population. So what sort of screening tests, like a fever or... No. So the idea with screening tests, um, so one way to do screening is by checking for fever. So you've seen the, uh, the forehead thermometer gun. So that's one mode of screening. It's not particularly sensitive um, in general for the coronavirus for COVID-19 because so many cases have no symptoms or don't have a fever. So there have been a number of companies that have developed screening tests that work well for, for COVID-19. And so one example is there was a test that was just granted an emergency use authorization from the FDA uh, last week, and that's from Abbott, and it's called Binax Now. 
And the idea is that it's a, a lateral flow assay. So basically what the test does is you do a nasal swab. So not in the far back near your brain, but just in the back of your nose. And then you're going to mix the nasal swab with some drops of chemicals. And then that's exposed to a paper test strip. It's very much like a pregnancy test. And basically this test strip will show up a single line is negative for um, the coronavirus and two lines is a positive test. And that result happens in about 15 minutes and it costs about $5. So it's a great potential for screening tests because it's cheap, it's rapid, um, it's easy to do outside of a lab and it can be mass produced because it's about credit card sized. So currently that particular test has a authorization for use only for symptomatic patients. So it's actually authorized specifically for the diagnostic setting, but it is possible to use it for widespread screening. And there appears to be some movement from HHS to potentially approve it for that as well. Um, and even without the approval, it's possible for doctors to prescribe it uh, to people who don't have symptoms. Okay. So hang on. How does it work? <laughs> lateral, what was it? A lateral flow assay. So basically, the way to think about it in simple terms is that there's a, a paper strip and you're going to take your sample that either has virus in it if the person is contagious or infected and mix it with reagents. And then you're going to expose it to this paper strip. And basically, the liquid will move up the paper strip the way water moves up a paper towel that's dripped Chroma into it. Chromatography, uh, the thing we do with the young people, you get food coloring uh, coffee filter paper and you watch the colors separate through capillary action. It's very much based on that, that idea. And so basically if there's viral particles, they'll move up and they will attach to, um, nanoparticles in this case of gold that contain a, an indicator color, the gold, as well as antigens that will basically connect with any virus particles. It will move up the strip and it'll reach a band, which is the, the negative band. And so the negative band will just catch that indicator particle. And that's basically the test to make sure the test is working properly, that it's been the indicators in there and it's moved up the strip the way it should. And the second line will basically be the one that connects if there's any virus in the sample. So a so single if line- no virus, if there's no virus, the liquid goes up to the second line, but the second line doesn't light up or get It doesn't dark. light up because the indicator uh, color will not attach to the second line. Okay. And the lines are made of antibodies, which connect with antigens. And that's, and they turn dark when they connect. They turn, in this case, red um, when they red. connect. Red. Oh, wow. Cool. When the scientists develop this test and they tell me how well it works and what the accuracy is, then I'm someone who can think about how to design that into a larger testing program. There you go. That's just what I want to know. So is this the rapid test everybody's talking about? So this is one of the rapid tests that everyone's talking about. So there's a number of different rapid tests that are out there. There are several companies that have developed all sorts of different rapid tests. And I will say that the technology in the Binax Now is very simple to understand and very elegant. There's some really nice diagrams that are very clear. And so it's one of those things that's really important because when people get a test result, we want them to trust the test. And if they kind of understand in general how the test works, it demystifies the science and makes them more likely to follow with their result. So I think the, the, the fact that the science is- Make people use it. Can yeah. be understood easily, um, really builds trust in the test. And it's really important for this kind of larger testing program to make sure people um, will follow their test results, isolate when necessary. All right. So- why aren't these things everywhere right now, man? That's a great, uh, a great question. Ideally, we'd have a large number of tests available. So our goal with testing would be for everybody to know their COVID-19 status at all times. 
So they'd know if they were contagious or not, whether they should self-isolate, they'd know whether they were infected or not, whether they should seek medical care. That's the goal. So we don't have enough tests out in our country right now to achieve that goal. And so these tests are one way to get there. The FDA has the role of basically validating these tests. So when the tests, all these great innovative companies are producing the tests and they produce some data to say how accurate the test is, but our public health system kind of requires the FDA to go in and verify that. And that process can take time. So the idea is kind of while that process is ongoing, they may have some tests that look very reliable and they think are actually worth bringing to market even before the full approval process is complete so that people can use them. We're in the middle of a pandemic and we need all the help we can get to fight it. So, doctor, what you're describing is there are tests now that have been developed very quickly that seem to be good. But the FDA, with its long tradition, is making sure that manufacturers' claims are valid. And remember, this, the point of the FDA is to make sure that we are safe and healthy. And there's a bunch of really wonderful scientists there that are doing this work. So it's taking longer than we would like it to. But the main thing is to make sure that the tests are as valid as they say they are. But a, a lot of the work I do as an economist is really about kind of the, as human behavior, is looking at incentives rather than just the financial markets. And that's the stuff that really interests me a lot because that's about these life or death decisions that people are making and how we can develop new policy that's going to save lives. So I'm concerned with saving lives rather than making money. What are you doing to encourage the correct or best public health outcome behavior? Yeah. And so one of the issues at the FDA is that their way of thinking about these tests is in terms of the diagnostic setting, where a level of accuracy required is very high. So there are likely tests in the pipeline through the FDA that have applied for FDA approval that would work very well as screening tests, but the FDA doesn't have a clear model for which to approve these tests. And part of the concern is that if they approve things as screening tests that have lower accuracy, it will erode people's trust in the tests in general and the FDA itself. So I can understand that concern, but part of it is that we want different types of tests used for diagnostic and screening, and we're in the middle of a pandemic and we really could use more screening tests. So the, any way that they can think about validating tests specifically for screening would be really helpful in terms of fighting the pandemic. How do we design a screening test program with tests that are pretty good, but not perfect, not at the level of a hospital test? So as you mentioned before, screening tests are binary. You get a positive or a negative. So that gives us kind of a limited amount of area to work with because it's not giving you a, a scale of one to 10. And the problem is that if people get a positive result from a screening test that's less than 100% accurate, they may interpret it as 100% accurate. And if a false positive or a false negative shows up, they might get really worried and kind of question the entire test. So part of it is really about the messaging to let people know that the tests are not 100% accurate, but letting them know about the whole system and how the system as a whole will work well. Imagine you got a screening test result that was positive. Instead of interpreting that as you're definitely positive, um, you have COVID-19, you would interpret that as you have an 80% chance or a 60% chance of being COVID positive. And you would use that information, that likelihood to make your decisions. And So would I just take another strip? 
another nose swab and do another test that morning before I drive to work or whatever I was going to do? So it's possible that you could do two tests in a row. That would be one way to do it. But actually, the system really works well if people test um, maybe once a week or once every few days. The actual cadence of the testing is something um, that we need to look to the data and the modeling to determine exactly. But imagine you got that. So you have a positive result. You know that you either have COVID-19 or you're contagious at the moment, or you have a false positive. But we can ask both of those people to self-isolate. The people who are actually contagious will avoid spreading the virus any further. And those that are the false positives, if they're also self-isolating, one thing they're doing is actually reducing crowding in public places, and that helps reduce the spread of the virus overall. And part of it is that these screening tests can't distinguish between the false positives and the true positives. So we basically need the cooperation of the small number of false positives to isolate, even though it turns out they won't actually need to, as part of the overall system. We should think about also the false negatives. So these are people who kind of slip through the cracks. It turns out they're contagious, but in their screening test, it comes back negative. And so they don't know to self-isolate, even though they're contagious. So people maybe are quite concerned about that. Part of it is that if we're doing frequent testing, then those people are likely to be caught in the next round of testing. So they wouldn't be able to uh, spread the virus very far and wide before they would get tested again. On the other hand, in some ways, it's actually a feature and not a bug. Because one thing we want to do is make sure that people don't put too much faith in these tests and start relaxing too much on the other things we know to do in terms of social distancing and mask wearing and hand washing. And so remembering that there's some false negatives, so people who slip through cracks, who are out there, who are contagious, who are circulating in the population, and it could very well be you, um, is a good reminder that we want to maintain our masks um, and our social distancing until we have data to show that the transmission has been slowed and there are very few cases in the population in our community. So Dr. McLaren, Zoe, part of what you do is influence behavior. Do you have ways to influence people to get them to wear masks? Do these, are these tests part of that larger effort? Well, I'll say they are part of the larger effort. So people who are not doing these things really are they want to return to normal. They want to return the, to the pre-pandemic life. And, and I understand that. I really miss so much about my pre-pandemic life as well. I think the thing that I like so much about testing is that testing is relatively um, less burdensome than some of these other things. So I understand that social distancing, people have made a lot of sacrifices, shelter in place in New York City early on in the pandemic, uh, canceling social events, postponing social events, um, postponing travel. Masks themselves are kind of a small burden, but still um, prevent the possibility of doing certain types of activities. And there are certain types of things like uh, live music concerts that a lot of us really miss. And so I think the way to think about testing is testing is a way to quite rapidly, if we have uh, good tests and widespread testing, drive transmission down to zero, and it makes everything that we want to do much safer. So I think about testing, the kind of new testing innovation, as expanding the possibilities that will help us both reduce uh, the loss of life, so reduce deaths, as well as give us some more freedom. And so people often think, wait, testing, that sounds like a real pain to have to go multiple times and get tested. But remember that with all the social distancing and mask wearing and postponing and canceling of activities, as well as having children not be in-person school, we're already giving up a lot. So to be able to instead do some additional testing, spend some additional money on tests, it seems like actually a pretty good trade-off. We'll be back right after this. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. Want to connect with a family member who doesn't speak your language? Then check out the language learning program Rosetta Stone on desktop or as an app. Rosetta Stone is designed to immerse you in the language you're learning through an intuitive process. Plus, the True Accent feature even gives you feedback on your pronunciation. And with a lifetime membership, you have access to all 25 offered languages. Get started today. Visit rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 to get 50% off your lifetime membership now. That's rosettastone.com backslash pod 50 for 50% off. As I do my best to remind our listeners and everybody I ever meet, if you want things to go back to normal, the fastest way to get back to normal is to wash your hands, physical distance, and wear a mask for crying out loud. If we could get these rapid tests in place, then that would be a fourth thing that would help us get back to normal much more quickly. Yeah. I agree. And I would say that the testing actually is more powerful than some of the other tools that we have and actually works much more quickly. If it were available. If it were available. Exactly. Um, But a lot of these tests are going to be available very soon. The Binax now, they are planning on producing, I think, 50 million tests every month starting in October. So it is in some ways around the corner. So the idea is that we're going to kind of test very frequently to catch cases and once we've caught most of the cases, the transmission goes down to quite quite low levels. And it should allow us to ease up on some of these other public health interventions that we've been doing while also keeping deaths low. And so the test not being 100% effective, the big program is still very effective. Like It's like the weather report when somebody says it's such and such percent chance of precipitation. You decide whether or not you're going to carry an umbrella that day or a raincoat. Exactly. And when it says a 90% chance of rain and it doesn't rain on you, you're not going to um, freak out. That's something kind of to be expected. But we know to trust the weather report in general, like, yes, it makes sense to bring an umbrella. So that same kind of thing with these tests. They're more reliable than the weather report. And the idea is that we want to do is guide behavior. So we want to make sure that we isolate as many of the positive cases as possible. And we can do that with these Um, tests that focus specifically on people who are contagious. They're quite sensitive to people who are contagious. Why is that? They're sensitive to people. Is it there are more viral particles in a contagious person's sinus system? Exactly. In general, the virus, the viral loads, the amount of virus in a person's body peaks fairly early on in the infection. And that's when people are most contagious. And so the idea with the PCR test, the diagnostic test, is it amplifies the small traces of virus to get a positive result. Whereas the antigen tests basically don't amplify the virus. So they're going to be much more sensitive. They're going to be picking up that virus 
and showing a positive result if there's more likely to if there's higher levels of virus in the system. So in some ways, these antigen tests are answering the most important question we have in terms of screening is, which is, is this person contagious or not? And should they be self-isolating? The question about whether they're infected and need treatment down the road is a somewhat different question that's best answered by a diagnostic test. All right. So what is the antibody test? Is that effective? Does that make any difference? False positive, false negative? What is that? So the fact that we have an antibody test and an antigen test is a source of endless confusion. And so the idea with antigen tests, the one that we've been talking about so far today, is that that's a test for current infection, which is that question of, do I have uh, the coronavirus right now? Could I be contagious? Do I need treatment? Am I going to be sick? Is that what explains my symptoms? The antibody test is a test for current or past infection. So the idea is, have I been exposed to um, the coronavirus? And so we use that as a measure of, did you have it in the past? And, um, and we don't want to use that particular test for this kind of measure of current infection. Why not? Because it's after the fact. It's after the fact. So you could end up getting a positive antibody test if you had the coronavirus back in March. So what's going to happen? I'm going to Go online to a big uh, distributing company, might rhyme with a river in South America, and then I'm going to get a case of these strips. I'm going to get up in the morning and test myself. So that's uh, one potential model. The model that I have in mind, I think about it as a kind of food truck model or a kiosk model. So the idea is that, yes, it would be very convenient if we all kind of had the tests available at home. We could wake up in the morning and take a test. But it's not clear that we need that amount of testing to actually drive transmission down to zero. So that's not necessarily supported by the modeling, although that would be very convenient. So you could imagine that a test would be as easy as filling up uh, your car with gas or swinging by a pharmacy to get a very quick test. What about going, you know, to a coffee shop? Exactly. I think about that as the kind of food truck model, that mo- the mobile health model, where you could kind of swing by to get a screening test, and you would go by maybe twice a week, depending on the local prevalence, and, and get tested. And so that situation, so there's two ways to think about it. One is that you may require a technician to do the test for you. And so that's not necessarily a major drawback because people are willing to have um, people help in all sorts of ways, even filling up your car with gas. Sometimes there's a technician who does that. But part of it is the, the regulatory environment to get home testing for these types of tests. That's a pretty big hurdle. And so the question is, well, do we need to overcome that hurdle in order to end the pandemic? And it's not clear that we do. So I think we need to look to the evidence and to the modeling to really uh, determine that. But the idea is, can we get people to test often enough if they had to go swing by a food truck in their neighborhood? And if we can do that, then that's kind of the type of test we can aim for. So overall, though, in this scheme where we're going to have testing for everybody and everybody's going to know his or her uh, COVID status all the time, we have an email from Sandy Bush who's just asking about the quality of COVID tests so far. I mean, are they are these tests that you're proposing going to be better? So the test that was just approved last week, the reported accuracy is kind of 97 or 98 percent, depending on kind of positive or negative. So a really, really high level of accuracy. So I think the idea with these tests is remember that none of the tests are 100 percent accurate, but they're all really highly accurate. And we make decisions, important life life decisions all the time when we don't have 100% accuracy. And so I think the idea is to kind of think carefully about the whole system. And so the idea is that we want to get these screening tests out to people because it helps 
It helps us make better decisions. A lot of people, I mean, nobody wants to infect their family and friends with coronavirus. So we think most of the transmission is accidental. And if people had information about whether they were contagious or not, then they would have probably made different choices if they could to avoid the spread. And the idea with these tests that we don't have to catch absolutely every case. If you can catch 80% of the cases and isolate them or 70% or 60%, that gives us kind of another major step forward in getting a handle on the pandemic. And that combined with our hand washing and our social distancing and our mask wearing, that that's the kind of the pathway to kind of low transmission, to getting kids back in school and to getting us out of the pandemic. Well, let me ask you this, something we ask all our guests. If you were in charge, if you were queen of the forest, is there something or a group of things you would do? Is there something you would want everybody to know or do? Testing is really, really powerful. We are fighting a virus that basically has stealth technology. It can transmit with kind of no signal at all. There's no symptoms in a lot of the people that are transmitting the virus. And testing uncloaks the virus. And that's really powerful when we're trying to combat this virus. And so I think people have kind of thought, well, we're not going to have very much testing. They've accepted the status quo of low levels of testing and a lot of uncertainty about whether they're contagious or not. And I think that it's not too much to ask to have kind of higher levels of testing and that that can really help us make better decisions. And it's a really important component um, in fighting the virus. And testing is more powerful than uh, mask wearing. It works very quickly at a kind of lower amount of effort. So kind of swinging by to get a rapid test a couple times a week is a much lower amount of effort than having kids at home for doing doing class over Zoom and for canceling all the events that we're canceling and for all of the, the sickness and death that we're experiencing right now. So I think really ramping up testing would be, it's quite clear that testing is really powerful and we're not doing nearly enough of it and that ramping it up will will work. And I think it works pretty quickly because part of it is that there's a lot of fatalism around the pandemic. And fatalism is deadly, that people kind of lose lose hope, stop taking the actions. Um, and, and testing is something where we can see, because it collects data as we do the testing, and we can see the transmission rates coming down. We can see, you know, steps in the direction that we want to go. And I think that is rays of hope for people to get a, to cling on to, and that inspires them to invest more in some of these other um, kind of social distancing and things like that, these other actions, these collective actions that help drive transmission to zero and get us out of this pandemic. Hey, should we reopen schools? So schools, I think, should be the number one priority um, that kids really benefit from in-person instruction, but we want to make sure we're doing it safely. And so I think that's one of the things about testing as well, is that testing is a way not only to make sure that things are safer, but to keep tabs on how safe things are. So we know how safe things are, so we can reassure parents that the schools are safe and teachers that the schools are safe um, and communities as well. And and it also collects data. So we also have more information to think carefully about how to reallocate resources and hit trouble spots and find hot spots and things like that. So should we have a na- should we have a national program? So we technically do have a national program. I think we need to amp it up quite a lot. Mm. Right. And I think we need to focus on screening testing as well to get this widespread testing that's really, really important for driving transmission down. How often would you screen test uh, students, kids? So that's a question in some ways it is answered by doing the testing itself. You want to have a cadence of testing that's going to catch most of the cases before they're able to spread. So if you're catching a lot of cases early on in the school year when you start to test, the idea is you want to keep testing at a fairly frequent cadence, quick cadence to be able to kind of 
get drive the transmission down. Once the transmission is low, then you may be able to slow the cadence down. But there's this relationship between kind of your test positivity of the test that you're doing and the cadence that you should be working at. And so you can use data to adjust your strategy there. I'm thinking of it another way, not just isolating, but isolating effectively. In other words, not locking everybody down, only locking down the people that are in everybody's best interest to stay home. Exactly. We call that targeting. And the idea about targeting is that it's very efficient. You're an engineer. You understand efficiency. I'm an economist. That's the language we speak as well. And the idea here is that we could have everybody shelter in place. It's effective but not very efficient. It's very burdensome. Whereas with testing, we're able to identify the exact people who need to be isolated, plus likely some false positive, depending on which test we're using. But that's still a small number of people. And they may be able to isolate. I mean, the other thing about these screening tests is they're sensitive. They give us a sense of how long people are contagious for. So it's possible that with with more data from these tests, we'd be able to figure out how long people are contagious and reduce the amount of time people are spent isolating. That's very efficient. It's the lowest burden and the most effective way of doing it and that the the testing data is a lot of how we do that. When we think about targeting and finding hotspots, we need good testing data to do that. And we need to improve the quality of testing data we have right now because we're not able to target at these kind of low levels, level of the county or level of the school even. Thank you so much, Zoe. I really appreciate your time. My guest today has been Dr. Zoe McLaren. She is a professor of public policy at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. Leave us a voicemail with your questions. The number again, everyone, 201-472-0785. You can also write to me at your homepage, which as we all know and presume is askbillnye.com. I am Bill Nye, and my friends, this is a pandemic. We are all in this together. And so now, my friends, more than ever, science rules. If you like Science Rules Coronavirus Edition, please take a moment to rate and review it in Apple Podcasts and on Stitcher. Helps us out, helps us learn who's listening to the show, helps us find out what you want to hear about. So thank you. Science Rules Coronavirus Edition is produced by Harry Huggins and our very own Corey S. Powell. Our editor is Tracy Samuelson. Our engineer is once again Luz Fleming, who also mixed this episode. Josephine Martirana is our executive producer. Special thanks to Casey Halford. Chris Bannon is the chief content officer of Stitcher. And it's Stitcher, everybody, and everywhere, really. Science rules. Couple more things. Wear a mask, wash your hands. Support testing. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com.